All right, I'm going to give you a little bit of history this morning. How many of you like history? Like history? It's okay. Well, it's not going to be like a uh, schoolroom setting. It's going to be a little bit uh, different. There's no way I can fully cover this man's life in, uh, in one session, but I'm going to do my best to give you the highlights, all right? Luther is seen as the father who began the Reformation. Reformation started when Luther posted 95 theses on the castle door at Wittenberg in Germany um, in uh, 1517. Now, if you can do your math in your head, that means that the 500th anniversary of the Reformation was actually last year. And so this year, I wanted to take advantage of talking about him only one year off uh, to celebrate his life a little bit. Luther. Books about Luther occupy more space in major libraries than those concerned with any other human being except Jesus of Nazareth. That's one writer uh, take on Luther. Uh, German historian Leopold von Ranke wrote about German history and said, the German people have only loved ever one man, and that man was Luther. The reason Martin Luther lives on today is because of his stand that he took against the Roman Catholic Church and the following that he got because of that. Now, in order to, uh, to really do justice, I've got to give you a little bit of background so you can understand what he was up against in his day with the Roman Catholic Church, all right? There was only one church in in Luther's day, and it was run by one organization called the Church of Rome, Roman Catholic Church. Um, It was was a part of the the Holy Roman Empire, which was not holy, was not Roman, and was not an empire. But it was called the Holy Roman Empire for so long, it's a name that hung on. The Church of the Holy Roman Empire was the Roman Catholic Church. It was the only church on the globe. There was no other church. And so everybody was Roman. If you were any way religious, you were Roman Catholic. That existed until the 1500s. It was very, uh, very different from what we are used to. Roman Catholicism of the day happened to get a little bit weird, a little bit power hungry, a little bit money hungry. So the day and age in which Martin Luther lived, remember this is long after the disciples, the disciples are long gone, and the church has taken a road down many political and um, and um, humanistic and all these different roads the church has gone down for, for a thousand years since the disciples had exited the scene. The, the theology of the Roman Catholic Church in his day, in, in uh, Luther's day, is that there was, a present, there was present in the body of every person a capacity for the divine. Now Augustine, who lived a thousand years before Luther, Augustine taught, uh, St. Augustine, who I love by the way, he taught that there was total depravity in the hearts of human beings. That means that we cannot reach up to God. Through time, his, his views were watered down to the point where they turned into a Pelagius view. Do you know Pelagius? Pelagius was uh, fought against uh, Calvin. Uh, Calvin wrote against Pelagius all the time, <clears throat> but John Calvin. Uh, but Pelagius and Augustine were enemies. Uh, enemies. They, their theology was completely against one another. So Augustine wrote that we are completely fallen, Pelagius wrote that, no, 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 there's some good in us that is able to reach up to God. Over a thousand years, that turned into what Luther was dealing with in the Roman Catholic Church, which taught that humans are indeed fallen, but they retain an ethical consciousness and an inclination to do good. Humans have the ability to choose good and overcome the fall. All right? So you need to know that just right off the, right off the, uh, right off the bat. Luther did not believe that. Luther became a pin in the medieval church of Rome, 
And Luther taught um, that we are fallen from the minute we are born. And this became uh, really the, the, the foundation of where his theology would be built upon. Um, by the way, that is what we hold to as well. In our Constitution, if you read our Constitution here at the Village Church East, we, are, we teach that we have a sinful nature that we need the grace of God to overcome at all. All right? You'll see more of that in, as we move forward. Let me give you a little bit of historical background. Uh, Luther was born on November 10th, 1483. His father was a peasant who worked in the mines. In Germany, the mines had a silver boom in Luther's day. And so if you worked in the mines, you got to keep a little for yourself. And Luther's dad, although he was a peasant, became very rich. Uh, Germany led the way in Luther's day in finances. They were a rich nation. Because of that, Luther's dad decided he was not going to send Luther to the mines. He was going to give him an outstanding education. So he wanted Luther to be a lawyer, and he paid through the nose so that he could be a lawyer, right? Because that's what everybody wants to be, right, Brent? Right. <laughs> he provided Martin Luther with an excellent education, so Martin received a BA in 1502. He was 19 years old. He received his Master of Arts in 1505. He was 22 years old. Both of those were in law. However, in 1505, Martin Luther was on his way home uh, one night, and there was a tremendous thunderstorm. He was on his horse, and the thunderstorm was right where he was. You ever been in a thunderstorm where the lightning is striking right where you are? It's loud, it's scary, and it was so for Luther. In fact, Luther had nowhere to hide. He was out in the open, and he was afraid he was going to die. One thunderbolt hit so close to him, one lightning strike so close to him, it threw him off his horse. And he laid on the ground thinking he was going to die, and he prayed to God, and he said, if you save me tonight, if I don't die tonight, I will become a monk. And God saved him, and he became a monk. When he told his dad, guess how his dad took it? <laughs> he was furious. Uh, but in, in 1507, Luther was true to his word and became an Augustinian friar. Augustinian friars are friars, monks, who get taught after the thread of St. Augustine. Luther began making a name for himself. In 1508, he began teaching on moral philosophy at the University of Wittenberg, or Wittenberg as we would say it in English. His theology went largely unchecked by the clergy because they were unable to compare a lot of what he was teaching to the Bible because a lot of them could read the Bible, but they could not understand it. I know this blows you away. The reason that the philosophers, uh, the theologians of the day, and the priests of the day did not understand the Bible was because they were using a Bible that had never been translated since the Latin Vulgate. That was translated in, in Latin a thousand years early. So it was not only a dead language, but it was also a language that nobody ever understood. You could, they could read it, but they could not understand it. And so Luther began learning the Latin Vulgate, which was by the time he was learning it, 1,600 years old. In fact, if you were a priest in the countryside, you would read the Bible but not understand a word you were saying. How do you like that? To get around this, the Roman Catholic Church, they could not teach all of these priests because it was poor, there's a lack of transportation, communication, they didn't have the internet. How are they going to get these priests all learned? So instead of learning the priests and teaching them how to learn the Bible and explain it as, a, as an authority for our lives and know what they were saying, they actually developed a new theology. 
The church taught that if you don't understand Scripture, the Holy Spirit will fill in the gaps for you and you will learn it supernaturally. So you don't even have to understand the words that you hear from God's Word. Even if you don't understand the language, God will fill in the gaps for you and you will receive truth even though you don't understand the words that are being spoken. By the way, a lot of this has carried on into the Catholic Church today. If you see some threads of familiarity, this is where this all had, had its roots. Uh, Luther began sharing some time with the clergy. In 1510, he got the trip of a lifetime. He got to go to Rome. This was always his dream because he was, of course, a priest and he wanted to get to see what clergy really behaved like. When he got to Rome, he was severely disappointed because these priests were pigs. They were, uh, they were worldly, they were money-hungry, and they were sexual de deviants. And they were, uh, they were out of control. Martin Luther had no idea this kind of things, thing was going on until he went to a conference in Rome and saw what the priests were behaving like. He was disillusioned by their indifference to holiness, and he was definitely put out by their love for money. Luther went back and kept on in his studies, completing his doctorate of theology in 1512. He was 29 years old when he became a doctor of theology. Luther, because of what he had been taught, always saw God as a wrathful judge ready to pour out judgment on anyone who was bad. Here's his thinking. He approached the Bible like any legal scholar would. Here's his thinking. Luther said, if the Bible says that the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, which Jesus says, right? True? If that's the greatest commandment, then what is the greatest sin? The greatest sin would be to not love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Makes perfect sense. But if you live by that, how many of you this week have never ceased to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind? Anyone? Yeah. Luther took this to heart, and being a legal scholar and very astute, in, uh, uh, very in touch with his own depravity, he looked at this and saw himself as not a convert of God, but as the, one of the greatest sinners of all time. He entered a crisis time in his life. He became frantic in his guilt. He engaged in more and more extreme penitential practices to punish himself for his own sins. That means you, you've seen different religions do this around the world, where you, where you have to light candles or do rosaries or crawl on broken glass in the Middle, Middle Ages. You were doing a lot of weird and crazy things. And the more penitential practices you did, the more you would impress God and escape judgment for whatever sin you just committed. However, for every sin Luther committed, he was going to confessional. He drove his mentor crazy because he was confessing every little sin. He had several mentors until the last one finally said, Luther, don't come back here until you do something really bad. I'm tired of listening to all of your sins. This sent Luther into a horrible state of mental instability. He could not possibly retain righteousness in himself but he had been taught he must. Luther began reading a new interpretation of scripture that Erasmus put out. Many people tried to interpret the Bible into modern day. Uh, um, Wittenberg tried to do it in, uh, 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 um, not Wittenberg, 
Shoot. It was tried to uh, be done in, in England. And they killed him. Hush tried to do it. They killed him. They kept, trying to, they kept killing people when they, uh, the Roman Catholic Church because they believed the Vulgate was the only inspired version and anyone who would interpret the Vulgate was worthy of death. Erasmus was loved by the Roman Catholic Church and so he was able to interpret the Bible and they didn't actually kill him. Luther got a hold of that text and began reading scripture in a brand new way and he came across this verse that changed his life, Romans 1.17. For in it, speaking of scripture, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous, I want you to say this with me, church, because this is a phrase that changed his life. Would you say it? The righteous shall live by faith. Now, he always interpreted this to mean that the righteous will live righteously. So if you're righteous, you've got to hang on to that righteousness no matter what, like, like, like with a death grip. And if you lose it, you've got to confess, get it over with, so that you can start with a fresh slate again. He always interpreted, the righteous shall live right. The righteous shall live righteously. But for the first time, reading this in a language that he could really grasp, he read this and he said, the righteous shall live by faith. He never understood how this phrase would become a hallmark of the Reformation. Because while he was doing his devotionals in a tower in the monastery, he had this experience where this verse came alive for him. He understood it to mean the righteous will live not by righteous living. They will live by faith in something else besides them, outside of themselves. He called it his tower experiences, his tower experience, and he finally understood the righteous live by faith in what Jesus did. Jesus lived completely perfectly, so we don't have to. And this is what he called his tower experience. And he says this is the moment when he was up in that tower that he really became a believer in Jesus Christ. He gave up his nominalist view that humans have the ability to be good in themselves. And he understood that humans do not have the ability to be good in themselves. They have to live through, by grace, through faith. This is a verse that we love here in, in uh, Village Church East, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You heard it already this morning. For by grace you have been saved through what church? faith. This is not your own doing. It is a, what church? It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Luther finally understood that living for Christ doesn't mean living sinlessly. Living for Christ means living, believing Christ was sinless, so we don't have to be. Because quite frankly, we're not. At this point in his life, he became a disenfranchised priest because he's the only one who believed this. All the people around him in his profession could not understand what he was talking about. And not only that, they were running in a corrupt circle of greed and immorality, <laughs> which only extends like why they, wouldn't know, why they wouldn't understand what Luther was trying to tell them. Let me give you an example of this. When Luther was born, here's what the Sistine Chapel looked like. This is a, a, a rendition drawing, because there's no cameras back then, obviously. So this is a rendition of what the Sistine Chapel, this is what the, the Pope's uh, facility in Rome, uh, the papal quarters, looked like. Now this, in, this was always being built up, more gold, more bigger buildings, bigger, bigger settings. And so by Luther's day, this is what it looked like. By the time Luther died, that's what it looked like. Now, you, that may look familiar because today, that's what it looks like. That's the papal uh, facilities in Rome. 
Germany, the Pope at the time was Pope Leo X. Germany was experiencing a silver boom, and in order to build something like that, you need a lot of cash. So Pope Leo X took out big-time loans, and guess where he got his loans from? Germany, they had all the money. So he took out all kinds of loans, and Germany said, listen, you've taken out too many loans. The Sistine Chapel, by the way, was being painted at the time. And he said, you've taken out too many loans, we need to get some payments back. Well, what does the church have to give? They don't have any cash. So instead, the Pope began to use what he did have, what he could sell. And what the Pope could sell, he could sell you heaven. And so in order to sell you heaven, he called it indulgences. And if you buy an indulgence, you could spend money to give indulgences, to get, buy an indulgence from the church, and that would guarantee you a pathway to heaven. You give them money, they pay off their debts, they get bigger buildings and more power. Pope Leo X. Indulgences, as you can imagine, soon became a huge abuse in the Roman Catholic Church. Let me put it to you this way. I'm gonna, I really wanna, want you to get this so that you know I'm not, I'm not banging on any religion here. I'm telling you history that you probably didn't get taught in the public school, all right? Indulgences were an abuse of the Roman Catholic Church. Every sin you commit has eternal and temporal consequences. Sin committed against God reflected uh, on your relationship with him and your relationship with your neighbor. And the sins that you commit determined whether you're going to get to go to heaven or hell. Therefore, all sins had consequences, and those consequences needed to be purged before you exit this life. This includes sin against God, which is the external sin, and sin against your fellow man, that's the temporal sin. So if you committed the external sin, this sin against God, the eternal sin, and the sin which is temporal against your fellow man, you needed to be absolved. And the way you are absolved of that is you were uh, given penance. You were told how to do penance. One of the penances that you could do is say prayers, go on a pilgrimage. These are different penances that you could do. And this is, by the way, where the idea of purgatory came from. How many of you are familiar with the idea of purgatory? You will never find that in Scripture. If you want to know where it came from, these Middle Ages are where the idea of purgatory came from. This meant that if you didn't do enough to get your sins taken care of here, you would be sent to purgatory, and then somebody else could pay your bill and get you out of purgatory. Somebody else that loves you enough to go on a pilgrimage or give money to the church. For instance, in 1066, this is, this is actually way back, 500 years before, um, before Luther, each knight who fought in the Battle of Hastings was required to do 10 years of penance for every one person they killed in battle. So here's the deal. The Battle of Hastings was called to happen during or by the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church said, now you're going to fight in this battle, and when you do, every person you killed, you have to do 10 years of penance. If you die with your temporal debt unpaid, you would go to a holding place because you're doing a good thing. You're fighting this battle for the church. You would go to a holding place called purgatory and somebody could pay your debt to get you out of purgatory out in the afterlife. If your debt was paid while you're in the afterlife by somebody else, you get to go to heaven. By the way, do you ever watch the show Lost? This is Lost, by the way. This is, they went to purgatory. You got that, didn't you? 
Yeah, that's, I love lost. I, knew, I called it right at the beginning. I knew what was going on. Anyway, your temporal debt could be paid over time by other people who post credit for you. So they could say prayers for you. They could do pilgrimages for you. They could pay the priest to do a mass for in your name. All kinds of different stuff you can do. And every one of those is chachink a credit to your account because you've got to get out of purgatory. That grew into the Crusades. How many of you are familiar with the Crusades? This, this is how the Crusades began. Crusades were wonderful for getting your friends out of purgatory. If you've got a bunch of people in purgatory, you can get huge credit, the church said, if you go on a crusade. They'll declare the war, you get yourself a horse and a banner and you know, some of your buddies, and you go out there and you fight for us, you'll get a lot of credit to your account. You can get a lot of friends out of purgatory. Crusades were attempts to liberate the Holy Land usually, um, Muslims were used, this was a fight against Christians and Muslims. If you think that's brand new, read your history books. Um, Christians and Muslims, or basically at this point, any other enemy that the church declared. The Pope had an enemy, they could declare a crusade, let's get rid of these people out of this, uh, even political rivals that they had. The church eventually said that a person's entire temporal debt could get paid if you went on a crusade. Now that's a good reason to go into battle, don't you think? Your whole temporal debt, you'd get a straight shot into heaven. And since not everybody could go on a crusade, like me, because I'm old, if, you're, uh, if you couldn't go, or sickly, or if you're, if you're a woman, or if you're, if you're an aged person, you could pay somebody else to go on a crusade. And then you get the deal, it's like a two for one. You get uh, credit to your account so you don't have to go to purgatory, and they get credit to their account so that they don't have to go to purgatory. Can you imagine the guy sitting around the table coming up with this fantasy? Because none of this is in scripture. And if it is, I'll give you $100 to prove it to me, all right? <laughs> it's not there. But it's like, let's figure out how, okay. So anyway, it gets worse. You think that's bad, it gets worse. Pope Leo X, would not sell indulgences, because he's not a salesman, he's the Pope. So what he decided to do was, there was a group of people that were sold out to the scripture. They were called the Dominicans, Dominican priests. And they would travel the countryside and they were poor and they would live with whatever they had on their backs, they were in love with Jesus and they would share the gospel. Pope Leo X decided that he was gonna use the Dominican priests to get the indulgences sold. And so he told them, because they had a wider range than his own priests, they went to all of these little, little, little places in the countryside. And so they would travel along and they would sell the indulgences for the Roman Catholic Church. One guy's name was John Tetzel. Wait till you hear about this guy. John Tetzel, these guys became salesmen for the church. Again, not, it's complete ignorance run by complete immor immoral leadership. So these guys are taken, being taken advantage of. One of these guys, his name is John Tetzel. He thought he was the best seller of indulgences around. He said that his indulgences were so good, if you violated the Blessed Virgin Mary herself, this would get you off the hook. That's pretty good indulgence, right? His were the best. So you buy indulgences from him, and you, these were the best ones that you could buy. Even repentance, he said, even repentance itself wasn't necessary if you buy indulgences from me. So John Tetzel... Uh, even came up with a, a, great, uh, 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 a great little jingle. He said, as soon as the coin in the coin box rings, another soul from purgatory springs. It rhymes in English and it rhymes in German, by the way. This is the world that Luther was born into. 
And the more Luther decided to become a priest who loved God, the more he became disenfranchised with the church. Can you, you can see his point of view, right? Again, I don't, I don't mean to make anybody make you hate your history or hate Roman Catholic Church. I'm telling you what the world in which Luther was born. When Luther posted the 95 Theses on the castle door at Wittenberg, two-thirds of them dealt with indulgences because Luther said, this is wrong. It's nowhere in scripture, it's wrong, and we are using it as a church to get more power and more money. He posted these 95 Theses. He was led by his students to do it. He was a teacher at uh, the university, and he was led by his students to do it because they said, you need to post this so that you can debate the church and if you debate the church, Luther, you'll win. So Luther posted these with an idea that he would help reform the church. He never wanted to develop a new string of churches. He wanted to fix the church. When he posted these 95 theses, he actually realized, as he was thinking through the theology of the whole thing, how much of the theology was warped because it was dependent on the idea of indulgences. And so his theology began to develop as he wrote down these 95 theses, and he eventually got caught up in a whirlwind he didn't expect. He just wanted to defend good Catholic doctrine. He did not want to have the church, to go against the church, or him go against the, them. Naturally, discussing all these ideas of indulgences brought about other questions of how grace was imputed, how man is justified by, before God, and what imputation of righteousness is all about. So the church refused to meet Luther at first. They said, we're not going to talk to you. But his popularity grew enormously. His students loved him. And as his popularity grew, the church could ignore him no longer. Instead of talking to him, the Pope wrote a bull. Do you know what a bull is? It's an edict. So the Pope wrote an edict, had his messengers deliver it to him, and he said, shut up, <laughs> stop teaching, no more. Luther was surprised to get this because he just wanted to have an audience with the Pope who wouldn't, wouldn't see him. So between 1518 and 1519, two visits by Roman Catholic priests on behalf of the Pope couldn't get Luther to stop teaching this stuff and to recant from the 95 Theses. And he was very gracious to these guys who came from the Pope. Finally, at 1519, there was a debate called the Leipzig debate. Luther qu questioned there the authority of the papacy and the infallibility of the church, which is what the church taught. They were infallible. What they taught was always right. Again, untrue. What the Bible teaches is always right. See the difference? Yeah. Luther espoused the absolute authority of the word of God but not the authority of people in the church. Two debaters were chosen for the brawl. A professor at Wittenberg was chosen to represent Luther. He was a better debater than Luther was. And then Johann Eck, a, former, uh, a theologian from another area, would speak against Luther. And the way debates were done in these days is <laughs> you stated your position and then you just attacked the other person's character. It's just a big shouting match. I know we're not used to that kind of thing today. <laughs> oh yeah, well, you're a racist, right? So that's exactly how these kinds of things went. So if you think that's brand new, it's not. This is all, there were cheap shots, insults, slander, all of that was done here at this debate. 
Luther's attempts to clarify his point of view. Remember, he got up there and said, listen, I'm not trying to be a pin in the cushion here. I'm trying for us all to understand indulgences are not right. So let's stop doing it. Let's look at what it means for us to be righteous through Jesus Christ and not righteous through buying indulgences. Let's get the church on the right track. Rome hated that. Remember, they had big debts to pay. As he debated them more and more and saw this debate happen in his name, he realized how out of sync his thoughts were with the Roman Catholic theology. And when he espoused his views, guess what happened? A lot of people began to follow Luther. And Luther's life began to be in jeopardy. Luther began to write more and more. In 1520, he had three great writings addressed to the Christian nobility of the German nation. This was a call to reform the German church and society. The second book was the Babylonian captivity of the church where he attacked seven sacramental system of the church. Luther believed there were only two, not seven. There's seven were marriage, confirmation, uh, last rites. You know, there's, there's seven that I think they still have today in the Roman Catholic Church. Martin Luther believed there were only two. What are the two Martin Luther believed there was? Communion and? Communion and baptism. Right, Lord's Supper and baptism, those are the only two. He also there in the Babylonian captivity of the church denied the doctrine of transubstantiation. That's the idea that in this tray there's blood and there's body, flesh. Luther said, no, 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 it's not blood. He believed in consubstantiation which is that, God's, uh, that, the, the, um, that Jesus' essence is above and below and in the elements, but he doesn't change supernaturally. The church taught that changed supernaturally to blood and flesh. And the, th the third book was The Freedom of the Christian Man. This he wrote directly for the Pope. And he promoted justification through, through faith alone. Before he published any of these, the Pope sent him another bull and said, cease and desist. By this, time, <laughs> by this time, Luther had had it. He was trying to do what he thought was right, so he had it. So he took the bull and went into the square and burned it in front of the sight of everybody. And he might have defecated on it, I'm not sure, but uh, he definitely didn't take it well. Now, that's just the, th the church part of it. There's another entity that became involved in all of this, and that's a political entity. Charles V was the emperor at the time. And Charles V was formerly Charles I of Spain. Remember, the Holy Roman Empire was not holy, it was not Roman, and it was not an empire. Everybody was vying for control of the Holy Roman Empire to pull it back so that they could be one head over all of these different nations. Charles was one of them, Henry VIII, have you heard of him? He was one of them, and Francis I of France was one of them. These all were battling for control over the Holy Roman Empire. Charles decided that one of the ways he could get further faster to be head over the Roman Empire was to win Luther, or to back Luther. So he became friends with Luther because Luther didn't like the Pope, and guess who the biggest pain in the rear was for Charles V, the Pope. So, so he saw Luther as a means to an end. So he makes Luther his friend, and he decides that he's going to back Luther to get the Pope's authority out so he could challenge these last two guys for control of the Holy Roman Empire. He summoned Luther to appear at the Diet of Worms. Now, don't ever go on a Diet of Worms, but uh, 
A diet is an emperor's called um, um, parliament. The emperor calls a meeting for all the officials in the area. That's called a diet. Worms is where the, the meeting took place. So it's a diet of worms, all right? Imperial diet was the empire, emperor's legislative body. And Charles V said, Luther, if you come to this, I'll give you safe passage there and safe passage home because Luther thinks he's going to be taken out any time at this point. You can't just burn a bull in the, in the square and get away, from, get, get away with it. So Luther agreed. And the reason he agreed is because he was so sure of his theology at this point, he was so convinced of it that he thought he could show up here and he would maintain converts left and right, get converts left and right. So he was looking forward to it. The problem was, when he got to this diet of worms, they didn't ask him for his opinion on anything. They got him down front, and they got all of the authorities around them, political and religious, and they said to him, recant or die. And he said, but I just want to speak. You can't speak, recant or die. No speaking involved. Yes, you'll recant, or no, we're going to burn you. Luther said, can I have a night to think about it? And they granted him a night to think about it. How do you think that night went for Luther? He seemed in opposition to the entire world. The next day he came back and he asked if he could make a statement, and they said, make it short, and here's what he said. Your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I'm convicted of error by the testimony of scripture, or since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of the pope or councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves by manifest reasoning, I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Luther was immediately banned from his homeland, and every book that he had ever written was taken and burned. Charles V was good to his word. He did tell him he'd have safe passage there and back, and he did get safe passage back to Germany back to his home. But as soon as he left Worms, he was declared by, uh, by the church to be an imperial outlaw, backed by Charles V. So as soon, so if you're an imperial outlaw, anyone could take you out along the way. You have no protection. How do you think that ride home probably went? Actually, he was kidnapped on his ride home by a very, very good friend named Frederick of Saxony. Frederick kidnapped him with a bunch of his friends and took him to his home. In this tower, Luther would live the next few years of his life. And Frederick, who was, very, who was a very powerful uh, landowner at the time, protected Luther in this tower. You want Luther? You have to go through me. And the church left him alone as long as he didn't leave. No more teaching. Luther hid at the castle for years, and guess what he did? He wrote, and he wrote. He translated the entire Bible in six months into the German language because the bars were off and he could, he could get the church, he could get the church to stop reading the Latin Vulgate. People didn't understand it and he could put the Bible right into the hands of the people. So he did. And he wrote the Bible in German, in a German that they could understand. 
1522, the uh, uh, challenge broke out between, uh, between uh, people who were uh, leading churches and such disorder had broken out that they said, we need Luther to help us. And he left his castle in 1522 and the church by that point let him go. A lot of other things had happened, but they let him go. And in 1525, he actually married Catherine von Bora, who was a former nun, <laughs> married her, and he had six children by her. By her. Oh, there's more could be said. Um, let me just skip forward to his death. Uh, he, he did a trip to arbitrate an, another dispute between two Lutheran nobles. He began experiencing chest pains in 1546, and he went home and died on his bed on 15, uh, February 18th. 1546. He's buried underneath the pulpit at the Castle Church at Wittenberg today. Life of Martin Luther. What do you think? Pretty amazing, huh? So why are we talking about this today? Uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I thought that was me at first. Uh, why are we talking about this today? Because this is where the Protestant Reformation began, with the posting of the 95 Theses. You wonder why it's called Protestants? Because they were protesting the, the authority, the unchecked authority and greed and immorality of the Catholic Church. So Protestants broke from the Catholic Church. There are two veins now, Catholic Church and Protestant in Christendom we would fall under the Protestant side of things because we look to primarily, the thing that makes us different, is that we look to Scripture, the Bible, for what we believe. We, you do not believe something because I tell you or because your elders tell you. You believe it because you can read it in God's Word for yourself. In fact, we encourage it. There was a Bible used in this day that was called the Chained Bible, and it was literally chained to the pulpit so that nobody could take it away because you had to copy everything by hand, and this was a very important book that you didn't want to take, and besides, you couldn't read it anyway if you stole it. So they chained them all down. Only the priest could read it. Only he could tell you what it said. Protestants don't believe that at all. We believe that God speaks to all of us. You open the Bible, and the Holy Spirit will speak to you just like he speaks to me. He tackled culture head-on, which is what we do, at risk to his own life, willing to be banished from the world in order to continue his calling. He was compelled to stand up for Christ in a world that had forgotten his word, and we are too. Stand up for Christ in a world that has forgotten his word. And he boldly proclaimed the unchanging word of God among his peers who were changing it for their own benefit. And we stand against that as well. These elders that are coming on, John mentioned one of his roles was to protect me, provide a hedge around me, I want you to know that's not just all flowers and, and fluff. That means what John said, what I heard is, John's going to hold me and Brent's going to hold me accountable for what I teach and what we preach and what, what are the vision we cast here, that it's all according to Scripture. I am accountable to God's Word, they are accountable to God's Word, and you are accountable to God's Word. You don't take something just because I said it. Go home, check it out, see if it's true. It's the unchanging Word of God. There's three things that I gotta, I gotta fly. Three things I gotta tell you about. His three main points for his life. Sola gratia, sola fide, sola scriptura. Uh, what does that mean? Sola gratia means only grace. This is the idea from Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. How many people seek after God, church? Did you seek after God? Not if you're no one. Not if you're everyone, not if you're included in no one. No one seeks after God. You know who seeks? Who does the seeking? 
God does the seeking. You don't. You know why you don't? Because you're full of sin from the crown of your head to the sole of your foot. You just don't know it. And it sucks you in and it tears you down and it tears your life apart and you see the evidence of it, but you just don't understand it. You need something outside of yourself, a righteous, a righteous entity that will reach down out of grace and grab a hold of your life crumbling apart and speak to you in only the way that he can and say, okay, now's your time for salvation. Let me pull you out of this mess and show you my grace. That is the difference. One, we seek after him. You read this verse and it says, no one seeks for God. The other view, Luther's view that he uh, told us, uh, that he promoted, which we promote as well, is this verse, that God seeks us, we don't seek him. Pelagius would teach the opposite. Uh, Luther said, man is by nature unable to want, to, be, to, to want God to be God. Don't you love that? Did I put that quote up there? Yeah, click it one more time. No, yeah, there you go. Man is by nature unable to want God to be God. Don't you love that? Indeed, he himself wants to be God and does not want God to be God. So true. Um, Once that entity outside of us, once God gets a hold of our life, he's able to change it and he's able to take the blinders off of us and help us understand what it really means to be righteous through faith. This is Romans 1.17, the verse that so impacted his life. For in it, scriptures, in the Bible, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That means that we don't, we're saved by grace, we live by grace. If you think that you're going to get to heaven because of what you have done or what you are doing, you would be sadly disappointed. You need to be freed from that and understand everything that needed to be done has already been done, and you need to just accept it through faith. That's what changed Luther's life. He said, grace is defined this way. Religion is not whether I want to have anything to do with God, but whether God wants to have anything to do with me. Sola Scriptura. The challenge of the soul of scripture was the church taught the meaning of scripture was bound, unable to be unearthed. It was so deep, you couldn't understand it. But if you get a priest, or a Dominican priest, or, or a friar, or a monk, you can get somebody that can dig a little deeper and pull it out for you, but you can't do it on your own. This has to be done under the authority of the church. Luther said, nope, scripture speaks for itself. He was haunted always by one question, was the Pope alone able to discern scripture? And of course we know that's not true. And so he began to not only teach that, but also translate the Bible so that everybody could understand it in their own common language. Romans 10, 14 says this, how will they call on him on whom they have not believed? How are they to believe on him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The gospel always begins with, as it is written. It is written for admonition, our admonition. Romans alone, by the way, includes as it is written 15 times. And this is, as, is what makes Village Church East distinct because if you, want to, if you want to tell somebody else why you go to this church and not another church, the very basis of that is that we believe the Bible speaks for itself. We are to know the scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.15 which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man slash woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You should read the Bible and you can understand it. And if you just take the time, God will speak to you through it. Luther at the Diet of Worms said, my reason is held captive to the word of God. 
And when you see something on TV, by the way, and you're thinking to yourself, is this right? Look in God's word, you'll find out. It's right there. The world may change the parameters, but the foundation is always the same. And if you're into a situation where you're saying, I don't know if this is even right or not, mm, nothing's new under the sun. The Bible speaks to all of it. In fact, Luther said, the Bible was written for men with heads on their shoulders. Do you like that? Sola fide, last one. The church taught two things regarding faith. Faith acquista, which means faith is acquired through instruction and preaching. That means you can get faith. If I preach to you, you can receive faith. Number two, faith infusa, which means faith is infused as a gr gift of grace that teaches submission to all revealed truth. In fact, it, what that means is you're able to live out faith as you submit to me telling you what faith is. Luther said, that's garbage. Faith is one gift from God. It's only one thing. It comes through hearing God's word. And then it is a gift. You don't earn it. It is all from God. Ephesians 2, 4-5. These are the verses we read this morning about God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together by, with Christ. By grace you have been saved for by grace you have been saved through faith. Verse 8. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works so that no one may boast. Luther taught that where there's an acceptance of the gift of faith, a love for Christ will follow. And the Council of Trent, which the church called in 1545, just after Luther died, outrightly condemned Luther's view. They said, that is garbage. Faith only comes through the church. Luther taught faith comes through grace. Or grace comes through faith. For Luther, no longer was he justified by God through a reprieve of the church or for by doing penance or doing confessionals or paying indulgences. For Luther, he was freed because of Jesus Christ and the work that Jesus had already done and all he needed to do was accept that through faith. By the way, of the 95 theses, that two-thirds of them dealt with indulgences, 71 statements were on the meaning of justification through faith. Not faith in what you can do. Faith in what Christ has done. All right. Sola gratia, sola. you will be tested on this. Sola fide, sola scriptura.